Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three we name you, all in essence one. What a great hymn. And we ask you now as we approach your word that you would help us, give us understanding, show us how to apply it, that you would open our minds to see the wondrous things written of you in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, the reading upon which our teaching is based this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes I have to wonder about the timing of things. Because here I am beginning a new section of the book of Romans this morning. And then what am I going to do? I won't be here for three weeks. So guess what happens on Sunday, July 21st? You ready? We review the new section that we're taking because... Now this... And I love 830 service being able to do this because we could really... You know, it's kind of an intimate crowd, right? So let's not be naive. How many of us are going to remember every detail of what I say between now and the 21st? 1st of July. Let's have some humility. Thank you, Sam. Let's have some humility. We're not, even I'm not going to remember ever. I'm going to look at my notes and go, I said that. Wow. So here's what I'm going to do. This will not be your ordinary sermon. As a matter of fact, if I was in seminary class, I'm glad I'm 57 years old and don't have to take seminary class because here's what would happen. I would fail. Okay, because what you're going to get is an extra long introduction, and yes, you're getting, I'm still Presbyterian, see, I've got to practice up, I'm going to General Assembly this week, so I'm still Presbyterian, you're getting three points, but it's going to look like this, long introduction, short three points, so don't fail me class, okay, we're still, we're worshiping God together, so here's what's happening, because one of the things I want us to do, and this is why the long introduction I want us not to just know the isolated proof texts that we can learn in the book of Romans, glorious as they are. I mean, and we know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Hallelujah. Great verse. But what I want us, instead of just these isolated individual texts, I want us to understand Paul's overall thrust in the whole letter, how it all fits together, because he's writing to a congregation, Roughly 56, 57 A.D., he's writing to this mixed congregation of Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the cosmopolitan city of Rome, the empire, you know, the seat of the empire. And so he's preparing to go on his missions trip to Spain, and he wants to let them know his glorious gospel. So he's expositing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 1 through 4, what he focused on was how God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be counted in the right before God. Before God, we are loved, forgiven, and perfect. 
I mean, just soak in that for a second. In our own sight, I know in my sight, I often think to myself, oh my goodness, what a failure, and this and that, and I could be so hard on myself. But in the sight of God, this is the wondrous, glorious doctrine of justification by faith. We are forgiven, we are loved, and we are perfect in his sight. So he spent the last couple of chapters explaining this wonderful doctrine, and now we get to chapters 5 through 8, and as one commentator argues, he says, those who are right with God are the inheritors of the future promises made to Israel. And since these promises are theirs, the new people of God have an unshakable hope. With confidence, they can look forward to a renewed creation where there is no curse and nothing will separate them from God's love. If you remember, we said a couple of weeks ago that Paul's summary statement of what it looks like, what it means to live out of the gospel, to live the Christian life, can be summarized as these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And in one way, you can can outline, a simple way to outline the whole book of Romans is around these three words. Chapters 1 through 4 are talking about faith. Chapters 5 through 8, focused on, on, based on the fact that we're justified by faith, We have an unshakable hope. And so our sanctification, our Christian life, is energized by that refuge, that security, that anchor for our soul and hope. That leads to the back half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, all about love. Love for God's people, love for the church, love for the world. And the back half of the book details those aspects. And so as Thomas Schreiner, who's one of the foremost commentators on the book of Romans, says, chapters 1 through 4 teach us that God has fulfilled his promises so that both Jews and Gentiles are now part of the family of Abraham. And human beings enter into the people of God by faith. Whereas chapters 5 through 8 highlight the hope that belong to those who are right with God. Now it's interesting, there are many scholars, many commentators who think that Romans 5 belongs structurally with Romans 1 through 4. So they would sit there and say Romans 1 through 5 is talking about justification. Romans 6 through 8 is talking about sanctification. And those things are spoken about. I think I've mentioned them a few times. But linguistically and thematically, I think it's prudent to include chapter 5 with chapters 6 through 8 and structured around faith, hope, and love. This is where if you have Bibles, if you have iPads, if you have Samsungs or whatever it is, follow along with me because I want to take you on a little journey through Romans 5 through 8 since this is the section we are beginning. It's really interesting in chapter 5 at verse 1, verse 11, and then verse 21 where he ends the chapter. Paul uses the phrases through our Lord Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ our Lord or in Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's introducing that in chapter 5. And then if you look at chapters 6, 7, and 8, he ends each one of those chapters. This is one of the reasons why I tie these things together with similar phrases. So the end of chapter 6, verse 23, where he says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then that pinnacle of the New Testament, chapter 8, 
verse 39, where he says, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So chapters, in my view, chapters 5 through 8, all tie together, all go together. And where Paul has just finished addressing the issue, issue of justification by faith, how we are made right with God, now he's addressing the consequences of that justification in the life of the believer. Let me try to put it as simply as I can. I'll go back to seminary class, and one thing preaching teachers always teach you to do, they say in every sermon, you've got to kind of have your, so what? In other words, so what? So you teach this, so what? What does it mean in the life of the believer that you're instructing, that you're teaching, that you're proclaiming the word for? Paul is doing that here. He has just addressed the doctrine of justification by faith, and now he is saying, so what? What difference does it make in the life of the believer? In other words, what are the consequences, practically, that you are right in the sight of God? What are the consequences of justification? And in a nutshell, so here's the summary of chapters 5 through 8. Here's what he wants you to know. The so what Paul is saying is that your guaranteed, secure future of glory empowers your present Christian living. Very interesting. High point of this section is chapter 8. And very interesting, I'll quote, I read it earlier, from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Interesting. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's missing? We're made right with God, and then we go to heaven. I love you guys. I'll miss you these next three weeks. But does this feel like heaven yet? I mean, are we still dealing with doubt and despair and anger and tension and disease and cancer and what's the financial report going to be and is there tension in these relationships and what does this person think of me and all of that what's missing is how to live the Christian life sanctification and why because what Paul is teaching is that sanctification, that overflow of living out of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are forgiven, loved, and perfect, is energized by the hope, the reality, and the guarantee of our glorification. In other words, what is Paul doing? He's saying, look at your future. It's pretty bright, is it not? Let that empower your present. Let that empower how you face your present. I read this quote a couple weeks ago from Tim Keller, who said, the way you handle your present is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. Your prospects. A hope is a future prospect. Something so great, so amazing, so rich, so good, that it makes it possible to face the hardship, 
to face the affliction, to face the turmoil, to face the tribulation, to face the uncertainty. It makes it possible to face it all and to feel that everything you do is meaningful, not pointless. So what is Paul doing here in these chapters? He's saying, you've been made right for God, and you are going to be a part of a renewed creation where the curse has been eradicated. It's gone. That's your future. Let that empower your present. And so Romans 5 through 8 is all about hope. It is all about hope empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes the decisive mark of the people of God. And here in these chapters where we're addressing the consequences of our justification in order to give us this hope and energize our present. Now, and I did well, only 15 minutes on the introduction. We're ready for the meat of the sermon. What highlights, what consequences of justification does Paul bring out here in these introductory verses of this section? Verses 1 through 5, anyhow, here I am being Presbyterian, 3. He's going to talk about the possession of peace, the power of personal presence, and perspective in pain. Okay, three consequences of justification here, and this kickstarts us. Okay, he's saying, here's what you have because you're forgiven, loved, and perfect in Jesus. He's saying, I want you to marinate in these three things. You possess peace. You have, you've gained access into the realm of grace. You actually have access to the personal presence of God. And you have perspective in pain. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's notice a couple of things here first. First, the word therefore, when he says therefore, he's basically saying, based on everything I've told you, based on our need of the gospel, based on the doctrine of justification, based on it's by faith and not by works of the law, based on the case study of Abraham, he says, we have been justified by faith. Since we've been forgiven and declared righteous, since God now sees us in Christ, sees us as just as beautiful as Jesus is. Since he can now look upon us. See, I want you to picture something for a second. What is God's face towards you? What is his demeanor? If he's looking down at you, is his face stern and angry? Is his face disappointed and shaking his head? Because of the doctrine of justification by faith, because you are just as perfect as Jesus is and seen as just as beautiful as Jesus is, his face towards you is one of a smile and favor. Doesn't mean he doesn't train you and discipline you as a child, but his face towards you is always one of loving embrace, of one of committed towards you. One where he's jealous for you. He looks upon us with a smile on his face. His demeanor towards us can be one of pure delight and love. And it says, since all of this is true, we have, now look at the language, we have as a possession, as an object of reality, not as whatever your subjective feelings be that day. 
we have a cessation of hostilities between us and God. We possess peace with God. Think about it. Jesus promised to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or Paul to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, I know he said that. That's a hard one, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and the peace of God, God's very own peace. He says, which surpasses all understanding. And I read that and I think, you think? (laughs) If you think, by the way, just quick aside, if you think you can comprehend the thoughts of God, you've not even taken step one. Here's step one to understand you don't understand God. You think you understand God. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will be like a military garrison. That's the Greek word. It's a military fortress guarding your heart, taking care of your heart. We don't even begin to get the first step of the fact that God has bonded himself to us in steadfast, unfailing covenant love. And the result of that is we possess peace. And more than that, he says, notice this, this reality, this possession is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning the reality is through the Davidic king who when Isaiah prophesied called him a wonderful counselor, a mighty, powerful, almighty God, an everlasting father. And what's his fourth royal title? The Prince of Peace. Do you think you could get more peace than that? And why is Paul telling you that? So like good Presbyterians, we could check it off and go, that's nice. Or maybe... To be an anchor to our hearts, an anchor to our soul, because we live in the wilderness full of trouble and full of tribulation. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's point three. But he's giving you hope to energize you in the present. That's the so what. You have the possession of peace to strengthen you, to be an anchor for your soul as you represent Jesus as an ambassador for him in the world. Next, look at verse 2. And the power of personal presence. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As Paul said to the Ephesians, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And again in Ephesians 3 he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I love how one writer put it. He said, those who have scorned God's glory and fallen short of God's glory are now promised a future share in it. And access into this grace means the realm of grace. We have access into the reign and the realm of grace. I love how Tim Keller describes it. He puts it this way. He says, the Greek word here means an introduction. He says, picture this. We can only develop a personal relationship with a powerful dignitary, okay? God's the powerful dignitary. We can only develop this personal relationship with him if someone who knows us, that'd be Jesus, who knows us both, he knows us and he knows God, introduces us. Access to grace means we are given a favorable position so as to develop a personal relationship, 
says this goes beyond peace with God, which was just the cessation of hostility. This is now friendship with the living God. We can now go to God continually. We have been granted. We have obtained access. We can continually go to him with our requests and problems and fears and failures. And he hears us and relates to us. The movement. This is why I want you to know the thrust of the letter. Not just isolated proof texts. The movement is from a legal declaration to personal relationship. The legal declaration, you're right with God. You have peace. Hostilities have ceased. You're safe with God. Now, God is saying, Jesus has introduced. Jesus knows God. Jesus knows us. That's what it means that he's the perfect high priest. And he has introduced us to that royal dignitary. And now we have access, continual, forever, eternal access into that grace in which we now stand. Even when you sin, you still stand in grace. Even when you forget God, he won't forget you. Even when you completely blow it and ignore him and intentionally sin against him, you stand in the realm of grace. So let me ask you this question, the so what moment again. How does it make you feel that God wants you to be his friend? Jesus said directly, I no longer calls you, call you servants or slaves because a slave has no idea his master's business, but I call you a friend. How does it make you feel that God is that interested in you? He wants to take you to lunch today. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to, even though he's omniscient and know, knows everything on your heart, he wants you. That's why he's given you personal access. And Jesus has made it true. You have access into this grace in which you now stand. Which kind of challenges me and begs me to think, what kind of friend are we to God? Do you cultivate friendship with God? Or do you keep him at arm's length? What is your communication like? Is it filled with warmth and intimacy and access where you pour out your heart and you pour out your soul to him. God is interested in friendship with you and has given you access to him. Friends, that's the power of personal presence. And lastly, verse 3, and Paul says, and this amazes me, he says, not only that, it's almost like, if that weren't enough, let me tell you more. And of course we're going, yeah, great, cessation of hostilities, peace with God, access into this grace. Here comes the other shoe. <laughs> it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Ooh. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, it seems like Paul here drops the other shoe. We still live in this world, as the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, goes, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And Paul's going a little further here than simply, we will not fear. Because he says we positively rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I need to make something very, very clear here. He doesn't say we rejoice for our sufferings. 
God still hates, and we're still called to hate the pain in our lives. We're still called to hate cancer and hate disease and hate injustice. We're still called to hate oppression and hate affliction. That's why the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16 and verse 20, I can't wait for this day. When Jesus returns and he says, and soon we will all crush Satan under our feet. I may have tiny little size seven feet, but my goodness, I'm going to get Satan. He's going to long and hard under my foot. Because I don't know about you, I'm tired of my wife's interstitial cystitis where she can't get out of bed. God doesn't call me to rejoice for that, but he does call us to rejoice in that. And why does he call us to rejoice in that? He says, knowing, underline that word, highlight that word, put it in purple, red, and yellow, knowing, have this perspective in pain, that your pain, your suffering, God is weaving together. Remember when I read from Romans 8, what God is doing in your life? He is making you, conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. You are becoming irresistibly human. Here's what it looks like. In the wilderness, you are being developed with endurance, character, and hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the very God, love of God, His love for you, His personal commitment to you has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why the decisive mark of the Christian today is the life of the Spirit. It's no longer the law, it is the Spirit. Do you know that? Do you marinate on that? Or do you go light your own fires? When the darkness hits, when the trouble hits, when the afflictions hit, when the sufferings hit, do you light your own torch? Do you light your own fire? And then wonder why it's bringing you to torment? Or you, do you trust in the love of God the personal, relational, jealous, vulnerable God, love of God that has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is not just wanting to fill you with good information. The goal of the Christian life is not simply knowing the right stuff, but knowing the right stuff is to cultivate virtue in your lives. That's endurance, that's character, and that's hope. It is to conform you to the image of Christ, to make your personality reflect the personality of Jesus. And if you want to know what the personality of Jesus is, Paul has told us in other places. He said the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So what's the personality of Jesus? It's love. It's joy, which joy doesn't mean superficial happiness. It means fullness of life. It means feeling things deeply and rawly. That's part of joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, godliness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what you're being conformed to. That's why you can rejoice in your sufferings. And again, how can we do this? Dr. Keller says, in other words, if you face suffering with a clear grasp of justification by grace alone, verse 1, therefore, since we are justified by faith, your joy in that grace will deepen. But if you face suffering with a mindset of justification by works, the suffering will break you, not make you. See, it's suffering that brings us to a crossroads every time. And it will either make us or break us. 
Friends, these, and these are just the beginnings. Paul's going to spend four chapters going through the consequences of justification. The so what of justification. We at this church rightly, and I'll defend this, preach justification all the time. And we'll continue to do that. But friends, do we know well the so what of it? What difference does it make practically in our lives? Is it transforming us? Is it bringing moral and spiritual renewal to our lives? Maybe we need to draw some dots to the implications and the consequences of the glorious doctrine that we are forgiven, loved, and perfect in Jesus. Father, we do come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would apply your word and continue to apply it. Teach us to apply it to our lives. Father, I just love your word. I mean, there's just, we have peace. We have access to your grace and to your presence. And yes, we have a perspective in pain. Oh, the spirit that is the decisive mark of the believer today, may we recognize all the time that your love through the Spirit, is poured into our very hearts. It's not distant from us. It's poured into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.